0: looking at some of the rich words of scripture words that over the course of time have either lost their meaning just because you know we've become so distanced from them or words that over time because we use them so commonly we've kind of confused their meaning and the word we're going to look at today is one of those words that we have totally confused the meaning of in the last 100 years and that is the word joy The reason I say we've confused the word is because if you've read any book on joy or listened to any sermons or read any articles on joy of the last hundred years, you're going to notice that typically when they talk about joy, they do so in contrast to the idea of happiness. And there's this nuanced distinction between joy and happiness. Joy, many of these writers argue, is this... Deep, abiding, stoic-like peace that simply exists within us regardless of what life throws at us. Whereas on the other side, you have happiness, which is this fleeting emotion that comes and goes as it pleases. And so a lot of times, these scholars will say, joy is of God, but um, happiness is of the world. Because happiness just comes and goes as it pleases. Happiness is circumstantial, whereas joy is enduring. The problem is, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) That's not the way the Bible uses the terms joy and happiness. And I, I will fully admit, I thought that's how the Bible used the words joy and happiness. And when Pastor Chris assigned me this sermon, I was pretty convinced that's where it was going until I opened my Bible and I actually started to find justification for that way of thinking and you realize it's just not in there. And this I just found it to be incredibly fascinating. There was a guy by the name of Randy Alcorn. He's a pretty famous author. He has this tendency to simply fixate on topics and after fixating on them for years, he just researched the heck out of them. He writes what would be considered a dissertation, but it's actually a dissertation you want to read um, if you've ever read a dissertation, like you probably made it 50 pages and then passed out hard because those things are so boring. But Alcorn wrote a book. Um, he does this on a number of topics and then he comes up with these super catchy titles that really engage you. Like he wrote a book on heaven. You want to guess what the subject was? Heaven. Yeah. And then he wrote a book on happiness. You want to guess what the subject is? Ha- sorrow. actually. You're right. No, it's all Happiness. He's got real catchy titles, but in this book, he has done a phenomenal job researching the understanding of biblical joy, biblical happiness. And in one chapter in particular, he really drills into the myth that joy and happiness are distinctly different concepts. And he just shows that is never the way the Bible uses them. In fact, what's interesting is when you go and look at Scripture, the Bible all uh, over a hundred times links the words joy and happiness together to emphasize their meaning. And we do this in English, too, if you think about this. If I say I'm going to go to a party, and I or I expected the party to be fun and exciting, but it was actually dull and boring, what I'm really saying by linking fun and exciting is I thought the party was going to be great, But it turned out to be lame. So lame that it was dull and boring. Right? It's just me emphasizing that it's not lame. Or it was was supposed to be great, but it was actually lame. The Bible does this a lot with the ideas of joy and happiness. It links the two. Here's just a few examples. Esther chapter 8 says this. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. Psalms put it this way, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Zechariah says, this is what the Lord the Almighty says. The feast that God has prescribed for Israel to celebrate, these these festivals, they will become joyful and glad occasions. They will be happy festivals for Judah. And before we go on, just look at this. Okay, These words, joy, happiness, gladness, merriment, they're all used interchangeably and synonymously. There's no nuanced, distinct difference in the way the Bible uses these words. And in fact, again, found this absolutely fascinating as I dug into the topic. In Hebrew, there are 22 words. 22 words. And in Greek, 15 words that are used interchangeably and synonymously with the word happy. And before you think this is an anomaly, we do this in English too. I came up with 24 words in the matter of about three minutes with the help of a thesaurus. <laughs> and you're going, who uses a thesaurus? This guy. But <laughs> well, look at these words, they all mean happy. Mary, pleased stoked jolly high has a couple different connotations i fully acknowledge that but if you're high on life life's going good i even left off blessed i mean that's one that we use on oh i'm blessed today right oh bless your soul Um, we use words like this all the time And so what I'm trying to get at is this. There is no distinct, nuanced difference between joy and happiness in the Bible. John Piper, a famous scholar and pastor, put it this way. John Piper said, if you have nice little categories for joy and happiness, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible. Because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. It's not in there. But some of you are thinking, well, hold on, I was always taught that there's joy and then there's happiness and that they're distinct ideas. So where do we get this? And as I said, I was taught the same. I always thought that's what they were. And as I said, I thought that's where this sermon was going to go. Alcorn drills into the history of the development of the word. And again, fascinating to me. If you're a giant nerd like I am, what he does is he actually compares writers from the seventh the 1700s and the 1800s, and shows that in those two centuries, English writers never made a distinction between joy and happiness. The first major uh, distinctive choice between the ideas of joy and happiness came with the writer Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers, if you're familiar with the name, he wrote a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. It's a total classic of Christian literature. It's, It's a wonderful book. It's a short little devotional that he wrote. Great book. But in it, Chambers tries to distinguish between joy and happiness. And because his book was so influential, his ideas of joy and happiness effectively work their way into Christian thinking and have clearly left an indelible mark. But again, the Bible never makes this distinction. The Bible never separates the idea of joy from happiness. And why this is good news is this. Joy and happiness are not mutually exclusive ideas from a biblical perspective. The idea is joy and happiness are exactly the same thing. And so when we're talking about joy, when we're talking about being married, when we're talking about bliss, all we're saying is they mean the same thing. And this is a good thing. Because we may not know what joy is, but we all know what happiness is. Happiness, it's that emotion you feel, right? When you're surfing and you drop in on the perfect wave. You can't help, it just kind of rises up inside of you. Happiness is that sensation you have over drinks and good conversations with friends. Happiness is that experience you get when you bite into an In-N-Out burger when you've been out of the country for a couple weeks. (laughs) You can't contain it. Happiness is, and I've only just discovered this, happiness is that feeling, that emotion, that affection that rises within you when your kid, for no other reason than they want to, runs up and wraps their arms around you. You can't, you can't fake that. And you've all experienced happiness in some way, shape, or form. And so when the Bible says, be happy, be merry, blissful joy, excitement, whatever. It's really just saying, be happy. Be happy. And we know what happiness is. Happiness is simply the acknowledgement, the recognition, and the celebration of the good before us. Happiness just comes when we go, there is good here. This this is what life is about. And it's simply acknowledging that. And you can't help but acknowledge, that's what happiness is the celebration, the response of that is happiness. This is a good thing. Church, this is a good thing. But I forgot why. (laughs) Ah, I know. Because it tells us that happiness is a gift of God. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but God didn't have to enable you to experience happiness. God could have limited the range of our emotions. Right? Like, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. We have some pretty, pretty phenomenal highs and lows in our life, right? The depths of the pains and the depths of ecstasy, ecstasy that we could feel is quite impressive. God didn't have to. He could have limited that. But he chose to give it to you. In fact, God is so for you being happy that in Israel's history, he consistently mandated festivals, so that Israel would come together and remember what their God had done for them, remember how their God was working through them, and look forward to the promises God had continued to make for them. And it's in the midst of this, they were then able to say, man, God was good then, God is going to be good in the future, God is good today. And they recognized, they acknowledged, and they celebrated the good. They were happy. Another fascinating thing, don't know if you ever thought about this, the single most repeated command in Scripture is not "Fix yourself." is not anything to do with love. The single most repeated verse, or the single most repeated command in Scripture is the command to be happy. Rejoice, be glad. give thanks, do not fear. All can be distilled into the same idea. Be happy. In other words, church, and this is what I want you to understand this morning. God desires you to be happy. So if anybody tells you God never wants you to be happy, he wants you to be joyful, you can look at them and go, (laughs) because that's always the mature response. There is no distinction. God desires you to be happy. God desires to see you flourish. God desires to see you thrive. And part of that is joy should bubble up. Joy should be a mark of your life. And in fact, you see this all throughout Scripture. And one of, the ones that you just, one of the letters of Paul, this just oozes out over and over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, the letter to the Philippian church, Paul makes this idea that we need to consistently choose joy regardless of what's going on around us. And so all throughout this letter, you're going to find Paul say to his church, I I rejoice along with you. I invite you to rejoice along with me. Regardless of our circumstances, let us rejoice. And yet, if you're familiar with Paul's letter, there's this, what I'll call like a giant elephant hanging over the letter. And that is this. As Paul writes these words to rejoice and be glad and be happy and have a good time, Paul is rotting in a prison cell on trumped-up charges of sedition, of stirring up anarchy, something he never did. He's being unjustly persecuted, and yet he's saying, I rejoice. I want to show you. If you open up to Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12 to 18 this morning. It's on page 802 in your pew Bibles. Um, You can pull it up on a Bible app, or you can just look on the screen. We'll leave it up for you. So Philippians chapter 1, this will give you kind of it's interesting the way Paul talks about his circumstances. I mean, just listen to it, because you're going to see, he really doesn't dwell on the negative. It's, it's quite odd. Look at what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has been become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Hold on. Did you catch that? Paul is saying, Yeah, I may be in prison, but ah, what's it matter? What's it matter? At least other people have gotten the boldness to go and preach the gospel. Talk about a glass half full kind of guy, right? Like, this is Mr. Optimism right here. And you go, how do you get to this point? He doesn't stop there. Look at the next verses, because this is where it just gets crazy to me. Verses 15. Now, it is true that some of those who have been emboldened to preach the gospel preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. That's true. But there are others who preach it out of goodwill. The latter, those who preach out of goodwill, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who preach out of envy and rivalry, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition. More than that, they are not sincere, and they suppose that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Ah, but what does it matter? The important thing is, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and therefore, I rejoice what hold on so paul is sitting here saying yeah 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 i may be in prison but let's not dwell on that guys my imprisonment has emboldened people to preach the gospel and yeah yeah i know some people are trying to make things bad for me but ah who cares at least jesus is getting shared what does it matter (laughs) what do you mean what does it matter like what's wrong with you paul What do you mean was it matter? It matters a great deal to me. That is rampant injustice that Paul is just kind of making light of here. I mean, notice this. He's saying, number one, yeah, 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 I am in prison. I'm in prison under false charges. Number two, he's in prison in the first century. Guys, this is not like ours. Here's just the clearest definition of why it's not like ours. They don't have indoor plumbing. You can imagine what the the cell must have been like. More than that, beatings were a regular way of kind of controlling the population. They didn't provide food. The only way you could get food is if somebody took care of you on the outside and decided to show you mercy. He's sitting in that space, hell on earth. And he says, I rejoice. And then, as he sits there, he's reflecting, okay, yeah, sure, there's some people preaching, but a lot of these people are doing it against him. They're trying to make things worse for him, and yet he goes, I rejoice. Guys, that's just not right. That's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. To go even more on this idea, I don't know if you realize this, but in part of my studies, I realized. Every single New Testament author makes the exact same point. Even Jesus talks about how we should rejoice when we suffer. What's wrong with these people? I mean, are are all of the New Testament writers masochists? Do they just simply take pleasure in pain? Like, what is wrong with these people? You sit there and you go, I don't even like when I have a hangnail. And they're sitting here like, well, I'm in prison, and it's absolutely miserable, but I'm just rejoicing. How do they do that? They're not nuts. They're not insane. They're actually quite insightful. And so this morning, I'd love to share with you some of those brief reflections on Paul's life of how, when we are in the midst of the hells on earth, we too, like Paul, like Jesus, like the rest of the apostles... And choose joy. So, as I said, I think Paul is probably the best example of this. The others are really good, but we just have so much of Paul's inner mind in his letters. I mean, we have 13 letters of Paul, and most of them he's just very vulnerable and honest, so we get a very good side of him. And one of the things you consistently see through Paul, and we see this in Philippians, is Paul consistently makes the mindful choice to choose joy. More than that, you saw this. Yeah, yeah, I'm imprisoned. Yeah, yeah, people are making things worse. But he's able to pinpoint good. At least Christ is being preached. And he fixates on this tiny sliver of good in the midst of the bad, and he goes, I'm going to celebrate that. He acknowledges it, he reflects on it, and he says, I'm going to fixate on that. I'm going to celebrate that. In other words, what Paul does is very much what we said the definition of joy is the definition of joy, bliss, merriment, happiness. Remember? It's the ability to recognize and celebrate there is good here. There is good here. This is of God. See, Paul doesn't fixate on his pain. Paul doesn't fixate on his bitterness. Paul doesn't fixate on the injustice. Paul doesn't fixate on the other junk that's swirling around in his life. In the midst of hell, he says, God, where are you? I see you doing this. I'm going to focus there, and I'm going to just acknowledge it. I'm going to reflect it. I'm going to celebrate it. Now, I want to clarify a couple things about this this mindful, willful choice that Paul makes to choose good in the midst of bad, or at least to, to acknowledge good in the midst of bad. There's two things we really need to understand here about joy. The first is this the Bible, Paul specifically, when it calls us to make this mindful choice to choose joy, to be happy, to look for the good, is not saying, is not saying that we need to fake it. The Bible is not saying that we need to stuff our sorrows. That's not helpful. That's not biblical. That's not necessary. And in fact, you see this again in Paul's writings, where he consistently expresses his own grief. He can still acknowledge the bad. He just doesn't fixate on it. Paul acknowledges, you know what? I've been I've been separated from friends for a long time, and that aches him. His loneliness aches him. He can acknowledge the death of friends and how that hurt. He can acknowledge his own pain, his own suffering from his own trials. He can also acknowledge his loss of freedom. He still grieves. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where you get probably the most raw view of Paul in that letter. I mean, Paul is a broken man at that point. 2 Corinthians, in chapter 6, he describes himself as a man who is full of sorrow, who is yet rejoicing. A man full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. And this is important for us, church, because we need to hear this today. When God says, choose joy, when God calls us to rejoice, God is not saying, shut down those other emotions. Ignore what you feel. Put on a happy face. Just, you know, set it aside, let's just move on. That's not what God is saying. Number one, because people that do that are so annoying. Right? Have you, haven't you come across people like this? Like, it doesn't matter if the sky is falling, it doesn't matter that every ailment in the world has hit them, they are walking Job's, and yet life could not be any better. And you're like, stop. You're just driving me nuts. Like, they, they, those kind of people grate on us. We see through that facade, We can recognize when a person is being fake. God does not desire you to be fake. You do not need to put on a mask. You do not need to ignore or or, uh, run away from your sorrow. You can embrace your sorrow in the midst of your joy. And this is something we see all throughout Scripture. God not only accepts us as we are, God longs for us to run to Him as we are. I mean, think about this. God, all throughout Scripture, says, come to me. I don't care if you're broken. I don't care if you're bruised. I don't care if you've got snot dripping down your nose because you've been crying so hard. Come to me. I will give you rest. He doesn't say, hey, go fix yourself. Don't enter my, fi- enter my presence without a smile on your face. Come. That's the first thing we need to understand. God does not mean fake it, okay? And second, this is part of the other idea that flows out of this, is not only are we not supposed to fake joy, we need to recognize joy is not something we can manufacture. You can't will yourself to experience joy. Sure, you can fake it, right? We've all done this. Like, when a little kid does something, we get really excited. We're not really that excited, guys. Can we just admit that? I mean, it was exciting the first 15,000 times, but the last 17,000, it's like, yeah, you're still doing that. Good for you. <laughs> we, can manu- we can fake joy, but true joy, that feeling that comes from an In-N-Out burger, that feeling that comes when your child wraps their arms around you, the feeling that just settles over the room when you're having drinks and good conversation, you can't fake that. You can't fake that. And so you go, well, how do we get that? How do we do that? Again, Paul, very helpful on this. We see Paul in the midst of his sorrows, in the midst of the hell he finds himself in, continue to press into two things the presence and promises of God. Consistently throughout the scriptures, you will see Paul reflect back on what his God has done for him. Paul will consistently talk about how his God, through God's grace, big word for Paul, through his undeserved kindness, loved us by sending his son to die for us. And in dying, Jesus not only took care of sin, Jesus not only conquered death, but Jesus has entirely conquered the grave. And if God's love is powerful enough to conquer the grave, the situations that we face right now are nothing incomparable or nothing in comparison And so it's logical for Paul to conclude as he looks back at what Jesus did and he looks forward to the future promises that God says, I will get the end. Paul can sit here and go, you know what? My God is faithful. My God is good. My God is still in control as he was then, as he will be in the future. He's here. And in this space, Paul can then will himself in the midst of hell... To look and say, God, where are you? Where are you? And even though he's only taking small glimpses, small slivers of hope, he can point and go, I see God there. I see God doing this, and regardless of everything else, regardless of my circumstances, I'm, I'm choosing to fixate There. I'm choosing to find the good, I'm choosing to find my God, I'm choosing to acknowledge that, I'm choosing to recognize that, and I'm choosing to celebrate that. I'm not going to bemoan everything else. I'm going to fixate here. Church, joy is a choice. It is absolutely a choice. But it's not a choice to put on a mask. It's not a choice to will yourself to feel something you don't feel. Joy is a willful, mindful decision in the midst of whatever life throws at you to acknowledge what God has done for us, acknowledge God's promises, and therefore acknowledge God is with me here, and to say, God, where are you? It's a willful, mindful choice to look up when all you want to do is look down. It's a prayer position. Lord, help me to see I don't have to tell you this. We live in a messed up world, right? All of you have watched the news. You can't go more than, I don't know, what, three minutes on the news without finding something horrible happening. And if you don't watch the news, will you please read over the prayer bulletin because that'll hit you. And if you don't remember that, do you remember back to middle school? We live in a messed up world, okay? (laughs) All you got to do is walk onto a middle school campus and see how messed up the world is. And while in the midst of this world, we have our good days. And there are some of you right now, life is great. Life is good. Praise God for that. Truly, you should be celebrating. You should be rejoicing. You should be saying, all right, you know, life is so good. Where is the good? I want to point this out. I want to say, God, thanks for this. Man, I'm going to celebrate this because this is good. I just I just sold a house. I just made a business deal. My kid is back in school. Hallelujah. I mean, you can find good. And truly recognize, acknowledge, celebrate that. That's of God. When things are good, we should begin practicing this habit because we all know, and some of you in this room, I know for a factor here right now, you are in your own personal hell. I know because of the privilege of my job, I get to talk with you. You share your stories with me, and I know there are some of you in this room that got the diagnosis you were dreading. I know it. And I've cried with you. I know there are people in this room whose marriages are on the brink. I know it because I've talked to you. And I know there are people in this room who have lost loved ones and you have not figured out how to put the pieces back together. And every day it aches. If you have not experienced loss right now, just buckle up. It's going to come. And when it hits you, it is disorienting. It is confusing. It is painful, and it is so hard to choose good. I know because a month ago, our family was hit with some really hard news. My, my niece, Quinn, we'll throw her up here. She's two weeks younger than my daughter. Um, she was 10 months old at the time. Quinn, and this is uh, my brother-in-law, Kurt, and my sister-in-law, Allie. and Quinn's making the cutest little face right there. Uh, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, it, was, it was truly a gut punch. And you want to talk about hell on earth, watch a baby go through chemo. Or a child. I mean, watch anybody, but a baby, I mean, they're so helpless. It's, it's disorienting. It is so hard to choose joy, and yet I'll tell you, through this entire process, I have been blown away by the testimony, by the faithfulness, by the witness of my brother and sister-in-law. In one of the first posts they made, they posted a video of Quinn on her hospital bed doing what they call the Quinny shimmy. (laughs) It's this little dance she does, because, you know, kids don't dance. They just shimmy. It's super cute. And the song that was playing was the new uh, song by the band For King and Country. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's the song Joy. The the chorus of the song reads like this. Uh, Oh, hear my prayer tonight. I'm singing to the sky, give me strength to raise my voice, let me testify. Oh, hear my prayer tonight, because this is do or die, and the time has come to make a choice. And then the song gets epic, and I cannot do justice to it, but it goes, I choose joy, let it move you, let it move you. And they got like a whole choir behind them, I choose joy. And then this is the, the second part of the chorus. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of night, oh, with you by my side, I'm stepping into the light. Yes, Lord, I choose joy. Let it move you. Let it Tell me, it's a super fun song, and if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, I've been listening to it all week long. It is just so much fun. But the song totally taps into this idea that we've been talking about today. That joy isn't something we manufacture. Joy isn't something we fake in any way. Joy comes from us choosing in the midst of our grief to look and say, Lord, where are you? And recognize though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. You are by my side. I am going to cling to your presence and to your promises. And out of clinging to your presence, out of clinging to your promises, I'm going to choose joy. I'm going to find hope. The tangible manifestation of which is joy. Now, I share their story with you, not because I, I, I'm looking to get you emotional or beat you up in any way, shape, or form, but I share this story with you because, look, these are some normal people. They are no different than you and me. But the choices they have made have been so infectious to me. Their ability to perceive good in the midst of hell has been life-changing for me. Let me give you a couple examples, because this idea to choose joy was not a one-time post for them. It was not a one-time choice. It has been a daily posture they have taken. Let me give you some examples. Regularly, almost daily, almost daily, my brother-in-law posts a hymn or a song that in the past has moved him. A hymn or a song that reminds him of the presence and the power and the promises of God. He just shares them and goes, this one's kind of speaking to me today. And he just shares that. He's pressing into his faith. My sister-in-law, and I love this, she's been finding joy in or good in the midst of some silly things, like the baby playing peekaboo with the hospital curtain, right? I mean, on the slide rail, that thing's great. You never thought about that, right? Shink, 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 shink. Or using her hospital or her IV tubes that are connected to her heart or her her chest as like little jump ropes to flail, because she's a baby, guys. This is what kids do. Or another great example of this, and this one just this one hit me hard, was when Quinn started losing her hair. Of course they grieved the loss. I mean, as you can see, Quinn had some beautiful hair. Silvery, blonde, I mean everybody commented on it. From the moment she came out, just a head full of beautiful hair. When they started to lose her hair. My brother-in-law posted this picture of him holding her hair in his hand, and he said this. Can we throw it up? They said it would happen, and it is happening. But I'm choosing to see this as a good thing, because chemo attacks the parts of the body that replicate quickly, namely leukemia cells. And hair is one of those things, those types of things that replicate quickly. So I'll take this as a daily reminder that on the outside of her body, A daily reminder on the outside of her body what is happening on the inside. We're Winning this fight and hair is just a casualty on the way to victory. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that also Pauline? Is that not very similar to what Paul is doing? Again, I'm not sharing this story with you to get the sympathy points. By all means, please, I'm not going to highly, by all means, please pray for Quinn. If you think about it, there's a girl at the preschool who's got the same thing. Pray for them. And I'll tell you, walking onto the oncology ward at Chalk, they're not alone. There's a ton of those kids. They need your prayers. But here's the thing, and I mean this sincerely. I'm not showing you this just to tug your hearts. I'm showing you this just like I showed you Paul to say, this is what it looks like to choose joy. It's these little things. It's minor. It's so small that in the midst of what life is throwing at you, in the midst of the hell you find yourselves in, to simply say, God, where are you? Because I believe you are good. I believe you are going to do stuff. Where are you? And they say, that, that is good. That is of God. So I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm telling you, my brother and sister-in-law are no different than you and me. He's a banker. She's a stay-at-home mom. That's it. They got four kids. The only thing about them is they have experienced the risen Christ. They have experienced the love of God in their life. They have understood what God has done for them and they cling to the promises that God has for them. That's how they operate right now. Frankly, because I don't think they have anywhere else to turn. But we can do the same thing. In the midst of our life, where are you looking up? Do you believe that God has worked? Do you believe God keeps his word? If it's true, God is good. God is faithful. God is in control. And in the end, God will get the last word. So he's doing something right now. Where do you see it? We all got our valleys. We all got our junk. But church, let us choose to look up. Let us choose to find the good. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. And celebrate it. Let us choose joy.